0: Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. This week, Sinan Ogan, the nationalist kingmaker who came third in Turkey's elections, endorsed President Erdogan. Having won just over 5% of the vote in the first round, his voters could hold the key to victory on Sunday in Turkey's runoff for the presidency. In the meantime, Turkey's opposition leader Kemal Kilic Daroglu is in the fight of his life, and the question remains whether he has a path to victory. Expert Sinan Chidi joins me to look at this latest development and how it could impact the election results. We also break down why Erdogan's better-than-expected showing in the first election caught Turkey observers by surprise and what the Turkey-watching world should learn from this. Sinan Chidi is a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he contributes to FDD's Turkey program and center on military and political power. He's also an associate professor of security studies at the Command and Staff College Marine Corps University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Sinan, great to have you back on The Greek Current.
1: Hi, Thanos, good to be back again.
0: Sinan, how should we read into this latest endorsement of Erdogan by Sinan Oan? Does it effectively seal the runoff election in Erdogan's favor? So, we'll have
1: to see until Sunday. This is uncharted territory. We've never had a runoff before in Turkey. So, we don't actually know, you know... If a small party, which got just about 5% of the national vote, if that person or the leader of that party declares their sort of support for any particular candidate, in this case, Mr. Erdogan, then does that necessarily mean those voters are going to go to the box this time around on Sunday and vote for Mr. Erdogan? It's unclear. So some of my colleagues, and I might be included in that sort of bunch at this point in time, suggest that... This may not altogether matter that much on Sunday, right? Regardless of what Mr. Oan is essentially signaling or on the opposition side, Mr. Uh, Kalishtaroglu has reached a sort of settlement and signed a pact with another nationalist party, got even a lower percentage vote than Mr. Oan, specifically the victory party of Umit You know, it, it doesn't necessarily follow that voters will just listen to those two leaders of the small right-wing parties and go and vote for the patron of choice. We'll just have to see. I mean, it could just be a turnoff. We just don't have enough data on this. My inclination is to think at this point, it doesn't really matter. And I say that because I think voters are going to go on Sunday, right? They will have a ballot in front of them with two photos and two names. One will be Erdogan and the other one will be Kovisharoglu. And they will just have to make a choice. Now, to what extent will they be motivated by OAN or Uzda if they voted for them in the first round? We'll have to see.
0: Speaking about Olan, is this a case of him actually supporting Erdogan, or do you think he's simply seeing the writing on the wall and hedging his bets for the day after?
1: So, from what I can see, and, you know, Mr. Olan has been a sort of low personality in the sense that he was never a sort of political high flyer, right? He's never had a tremendous following, and he's raised within the nationalist movement itself. And as best as I can tell, he is a political opportunist. He's trying to, as far as I can say, trying to see what he can exact for himself out of this. And after the first round, he basically said, you know, his support is up for anybody, indicating that he was willing to sort of entertain offers. So my understanding is, should Mr. Erdogan win, you might be right in the sense that he's seen the writing on the wall. But the question is, is he going to get something out of this? Has Mr. Erdogan promised him anything? In his support speech that he gave to Erdogan the other day, he indicated that he's not in it for anything or office or spoils or anything. But I don't necessarily know that's true. We'll see. It depends. You know, my understanding is he would want something in return for his, you know, kiss the ring kind of approach and throw sort of in his support for Mr. Erdogan.
0: Sinan, you mentioned how it's difficult to make predictions on what you know voters will actually do come election day. But the nationalist turn that we're seeing both Kilis Daroglu and Erdogan take leading up to Sunday is bound to have an impact on Kurdish voters who are crucial in these elections. Do you think that this could sway them in one way or another?
1: Yeah, sure. So I initially thought that if, you know, especially on the cultural side, this pact he has reached with Umit Özda, another former MHP operative, right, a far-right nationalist actor, that pact that they signed and was released yesterday or today says that Kulish Doral, should he be elected president, supports Özda's proposal for the appointment of unelected mayors in provinces specifically, you know, that are Kurdish, or they're a little bit more ambiguous in the language. But the Article 4 of that pact suggests that Kalish is okay with appointing caretaker or unelected mayors in places which have succumbed to sort of terrorism, right? So that essentially means that, you know, Kalish is okay to have sort of the Kurdish sort of mayors that are aligned with the Green Left Party now, to be removed and put in with appointed men. Now, what does that do to the Kurdish voter mindset? Do they choose between the lesser of two evils? Because they're certainly not going to vote for Mr. Erdogan in large swaths. But you'd have to be disappointed as a Kurdish elector, or if you're a senior member of the green-left movement, such as Sadat and Dimitash, seeing Kurdish Thurl engage in this sort of whiplash slide to the right. It does, in my view, have the potential to turn off a lot of Kurdish voters. But on the other hand, I saw Parabin Buldan just a few moments ago, basically address her sort of support, another senior leader of the green left movement, saying that, you know, until Erdogan's gone, we need to vote against whoever it is. And we can settle that score, as in deal with any sort of nationalist sentiment, you know, the cultural camp after the fact. I don't know. I mean, it depends. I mean, some people just maybe turned off and say, I'm not going to vote for anybody. Previously, Coach Thoreau had drawn a line in the sand about inclusivity, about diversity, you know, essentially from LGBTQ to migrants, whatever, they had an inclusive approach. Now, in the last 10 days or so, they've veered sharply to the right. Several things come out of that. One is his inconsistency, right? I mean, what are voters to believe? I mean, what, where does the CHP or the all stand? I don't know. That's one. Two, it looks desperate. I mean, I don't know who the coalition or the strategy team is, but, you know, in the last 10 days before an election, they've essentially said to him, here's a Hail Mary pass, abandon all your inclusivity speech. Veer hard to the right, because that's what got Erdogan ahead in the first round of balloting. It looks desperate. And I don't know if necessarily people believe it. But also on the third, what about liberal voters in the American sense, right? People who espouse a strong rule of law, democratic-based governance. How would they interpret this notion of voting for a Kılıçdaroğlu that is accepting some of like, the key premises of the Erdogan campaign, such as unelected mayors in Kurdish provinces? I think it really is making people quite sour to the stomach.
0: So, you think that Kilij Darglu is dropping the ball leading up to Sunday's runoff?
1: Oh, I think he dropped the ball a long time ago. Look, just this election strategy of veering to the right seems ham-handed to me. I don't know who's in charge of it, but it just seems inconsistent, incoherent, and desperate. But on the other hand, he's dropped the ball simply because, and again, in the last 10 days, right, Erdogan really hasn't been doing that much on the public stage. I mean, he's put out statements, but what he really has been doing is throwing out sort of these. Tidbits of misinformation and disinformation against cholesterol campaign, for example, putting up billboards in different parts of the country, accusing or these billboards pretend to be put out by the cholesterol camp. And they read things like, if we're elected, as in if cholesterol is elected, then we will release Ojalan, which is a complete lie, right? But whoever the cholesterol campaign team is, They sort of dither around this, and they haven't really spent time in how to counter this disinformation campaign, how to put out swift denials. Instead, they seem to be quibbling amongst themselves as to how to respond to this. And it just looks really unprofessional. I do have to say that at this point, from what I'm seeing, if an opposition party was keen to hand over an election victory to Erdogan, this is what it would look like. I mean, it really looks like they're trying to lose this. And so, you know, it looks somewhat desperate and inconsistent going into the final lap on Sunday.
0: Looking at the way that things are playing out in Turkey's election, Sinan, it seems that the results from the first election caught many Turkey watchers and observers by surprise, as the expectation was that Kılıçdaroğlu Dargulu and this united opposition would finally knock Erdogan from his seat of power. Why did a number of experts, in your opinion, get the election all wrong?
1: So the wrong aspect of it is one thing. I think what really happened in the analytical phase of this was just to sort of ignore one half of the debate. And that's really the crux of this problem. It's not necessarily much they got it wrong. Anybody can get it wrong. You know, I got, for example, the issue of the S-400 in 2019 wrong, as in I was fully expecting that the Erdogan government would not go ahead with the S-400 purchase, and this would just be essentially a bluff, as with their attempted purchase of the Chinese system back in 2010, but I got it wrong. The problem is, not only did some analytical sort of colleagues get this wrong, but they essentially railroaded over, right? Abuse that suggested that there might be structural impediments to essentially Erdogan losing the election, or if he did actually lose it, then actually leaving office peacefully and transferring power. It's not so much that people are stomping up and down and saying "ha ha, so and so got it wrong." It's so much the fact that why did you ignore individuals or analysts or scholars who put the opposing view, saying, "Look, regardless of what you're saying, there is a different side to this, which is Erdogan could win fair and square." He could actually manipulate the results. He could even pressure a situation whereby he's not seeking to accept the outcome of a democratic election and leave power. So in terms of airtime, in terms of analysis, in terms of anything ranging from sort of speaker events to podcasts, people were essentially just shut out because we were essentially told the writing's on the wall. Team Khalid is going to win because of the earthquake and the terrible state of the economy and the reign of Erdogan was over. So it's a kind of hubris that came to present itself on the minds of some. And we've seen, for example, with the editor-in-chief of Mediascope in Turkey, Ruşan Çakır, sort of go on the airwaves since then and say, look, I got this wrong. And again, I would just like to underscore to your listeners, it's not so much that people got it wrong and nobody should have a problem with getting it wrong. You know, at the end of the day, we're all making predictions. It's the case that, you know, we know more than other people. We've sniffed the air on the streets. We attended election rallies. And based on the mood and sentiment that, you know, we gathered, it looks like Erdogan's going to go. And fine, that's an opinion. But it was far from certain, and it just sort of ignored, willfully ignored a lot of people who sort of cautioned against this outcome.
0: Looking ahead then, how should, in your opinion, the turkey-watching world approach this second round of voting? Are there any basic rules that you think should apply moving forward for those working on Turkey?
1: Look, I mean, all of us, I think, are doing as good a job as we can. I think all our hearts are in the right place. We want to essentially understand you know, and predict what's going to happen and also try to understand what may come in the event of a possible Erdogan victory or maybe a Kulish victory, right? Because we're all interested in basically our listeners, our viewers, our, our readers to have the best tools to sort of equip themselves. I don't think anybody's essentially trying to just stomp up and down saying, you know, I told you so. It's not about that. I would just say, Let's entertain as a diverse set of opinions as possible that are informed, that have some sort of, you know, engagement with data and diversity of views. And that includes, you know, bringing people onto shows or accepting articles into outlets from people that you ordinarily don't bring or listen to or put out there. Otherwise... As with the Mediascope family, what you've essentially seen is a lot of analysis that just ended up in groupthink. And it actually, from that sense, Mediascope as a huge domestic following inside of Turkey, it also shapes public opinion and the disappointment that ensued from the first round of voting that expected Khalilz to sort of landslide over Erdogan. And when that didn't come about, I think it really exacerbated and sort of entrenched people's disappointment. It made them feel that much worse off. Because expectation was so unfairly raised, I think people just should exercise a bit of caution and try to include as much of a diversity of opinion as possible in their analysis.
0: Sinan, it's been great speaking with you as always. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Thanos. In other news, the loss of 12 points by Syriza, compared to the previous election in 2019, which constitutes a negative record for a party in opposition, has put it and its leadership on the back foot, with large spillovers to other parties. As suggested by the results, 10% of its voters lean toward the center-left PASOK, 5% to the communist KKE, 3.3% to the leftist META-25, and 3.4% to Nationalist Greek Solution. The largest percentage of voters, however, moved toward ruling New Democracy. A qualitative analysis of the ballots cast can in many ways explain New Democracy's sweeping victory by more than 20 points, as it dominated in all age and professional groups. Finally, Greece's president appointed a caretaker prime minister on Wednesday to form a government that will lead the country to a repeat election on June 25th, after last weekend's inconclusive vote. On Wednesday, President Katerina sakelaro invited the leaders of all the parties whose share of the vote surpassed the threshold of 3% to discuss steps forward. The invitation was procedural, and the brief talks did not produce a coalition government. Under Greece's constitution, if coalition talks fail, the president appoints a caretaker prime minister to lead the country to a repeat vote. She appointed Yanni Sarmas, a senior judicial official who is president of the Hellenic Court of Audit, one of the country's three senior courts. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.